At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to a former NBA player who played 14 seasons in the league. And now he's written his memoir. His name is Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. And his book, Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball, is excellent. We're going to be talking to Muggsy Bogues and his co-author, Jake Uidi. Also, I've got some choice words about what's happening with Brittany Griner, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, and more. But first, let's talk to Jake Uidi and the legendary... Muggsy Bogues. So first and foremost, uh, Mr. Bogues, I mean, may I call you Muggsy? I don't even know. Yes, please do. Please do. Okay, great. That makes me so comfortable. Um, I just have to ask, first and foremost, what, what inspired you at this point in your life to put a book together? Well, I felt like this has been long enough to, in terms of me being away from the public, being um, away from the game for 20 years. And when I did my first book, my first autobiography in 94, it was mainly for when my pops had passed away. And it was kind of talking about, you know, the journey of, of being in the NBA and that sort of thing. Uh, this one, I felt like we needed to put it out there because of I wanted to, to give kids hopes, not only just kids, but uh, people just going through individual, um, going through life within themselves because I got a more substance in this one than I did in the last one. And speaking of, you know, in terms of the substance, it's about, you know, the impact that I had in the game with uh, with my the bonding with my players, um, the things that I was able to how impact them and, and, and influence them as well, as well as they helped me during the process. It ain't just a basketball book. It's a passionate, you know, if you have a passionate and it's chasing it each and every day, um, it's about relationships. It's about giving back to the community. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to put it out. Mm. And before I go to you, Jake, I just got to ask you one more question, Muggsy, because this is the question I've always wanted to ask you, you know, having been watching your career since Wake Forest. I mean, I always want to know, where did your belief come from? I mean, a five foot three inch kid from Baltimore thinking that they're going to play in the ACC, that they're going to play in the NBA. I mean, you must have had people try to tear you down along the way and say, what are you talking about? Like, where did your belief in yourself come from? 
It was the inner, inner within. I, I would say more or less it was an inner strength, an inner belief, um, dealing with my situation at the time in terms of not looking beyond where I was, not looking at the ACC or the NBA. I was living in the moment. And when you're living in the moment, I mean, of course, what I was trying to pursue and all the naysayers and all the folks that didn't believe the things that I was trying to do and trying to persuade me uh, from even pursuing it, um, it, 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 I think it, like I said, started when I was five years old when, when I got shot and, you know, not hearing, you know, hearing all that negativity early on and then not being able to feel it after, you know, me recovering from that dramatic experience, you know, mm -hmm. those words didn't mean anything. And I think I just was on that course the entire time, just trying to, you know, prove myself that I can play. And I didn't have anything to do with anybody else, even though the words, and the negativity, you know, fueled me, but it was more self the driven within myself, wanting to belong, wanting to belong. Wow. Can you speak a little more about that, about what happened to you when you were five? Well, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, a fight broke out outside of my apartment building. I snuck outside. My mom and dad thought I was in the house. Uh, one of the kids that was in the fight took a rock and went and broke one of the store owner's window. And the store owner came out, ran straight to his shed, grabbed his double barrel shotgun and started shooting through the neighborhood. Unfortunately, the bullet missed my head, but unfortunately, mm. the buckshots went through my body. Unbelievable. Um, Jake, a question for you. What was it like to work with Muggsy on this project? And what, what do you want people to know about the book? Muggsy is, was fantastic to work with. I, I wake up every morning grateful that we were able to collaborate on the book. And I, I'm just eternally thankful for um, him allowing me to sort of share his story and, and for him to trust me with the story. Um, you know, Muggsy, Muggsy, I say in the sort of the intro of the book, he's, he's a walking biopic. And, and what I mean by that is that he's just inspiration incarnate. You know, we, we were lucky enough to talk to Steph Curry, who, who Muggsy sort of helped raise uh, ancillarily because he was a uh, Muggsy and Del Curry are such close friends. And st what Steph told us, one of the things he told us was he remembers being a little kid and wanting to be 5'3", because you knew that if you were 5'3", you at least had a chance. And, you know, Steph isn't the, the biggest person in the world, the largest person in the world. So, so he, like many people, like me also as a kid growing up in the 90s, loving basketball, you know, you had that, oh, I just want to get to be 5'3", because then I have a chance. And, and Muggsy provided that example and, and still continues to provide that example. And that's kind of what the book is about because Muggsy did endure a lot of criticism and a lot of, you know, trash talking on the playgrounds. And, but because of his success, people who look like him and who are his stature don't get made fun of in the same way because he provided that example. And it's just to, to shout that out from the rooftops is it was an honor. Mm. Now, now, Muggsy, you grew up, of course, in Baltimore, playing on just a legendary Dunbar High School team. Uh, what do you remember most about that team and your role on it? And can you speak a little bit about what, what the memories of playing on that team did for you and your confidence as you came forward in your career? Well, I mean, that team was very, very special. I mean, because you had a bunch of kids that mainly grew up in the same area who had Ooh. the same longer, the same goal, the same aspiration, and being able to go to a school within your neighborhood and try to fulfill those dreams was a blessing within himself. 
Um, and we didn't have to travel. We didn't have to go uh, far in order for us to be able to get an education and also play a craft that we so desperately love. And that, and on that team, I mean, gosh, talking about the talent pool, man, the talent pool was 15 strong. Mm. Every one of the kids was fortunate enough and blessed to be able to be offered a Division One scholarship. And that's what Coach Wade program uh, consisted of. You came there, it's a possibility that you get an opportunity to go to uh, college and, and further your education. And that was something that we all bought in. And knowing that even though we knew we had so much talent, but the egos was checked at the door. Um, Coach was just was an unbelievable leader. I mean, he was so empathetic. He understood where we came from, what made us tick. Um, he was, I mean, he was a man that made, he knew how much talent we had. So he made each and everybody accountable. And he also, you know, gave us vision. You know, we had clarity. We understood what the task was at hand. But the most important thing was gratitude. I mean, we was grateful to be with one another, to understand the type of talent that we had, but, you know, how to conduct ourselves on and off the court. You know, character was very high in his regard, so he wanted to make sure we displayed that on any given basis. And, you know, he's very he spoke about body language so, so heavily, but the way of how we was able to win gratefully, you know, not being egotistic or anything like that, we was grateful, even though we the experience the losing part of it but we understood how to win and we was grateful in doing so and that's one of the things that stands out the most wow uh jake what did you learn about the baltimore of mugsy's youth that you didn't know the thing that i always think about first is the bricks uh that coach wade put in the hands of uh his his students you know his his mentees there wasn't uh workout equipment there wasn't all the stuff that that exists today so Coach Wade went out into the street and <clears throat> found a cart full of bricks that he wrapped cloth and duct tape around. And, and the players would use those, you know, while running and doing sprints and, and, and everything else. And so the, the ingenuity, ingenuity, the innovativeness, uh, innovation that, that he offered his players and they, they never lost. Um, and just to sort of uh, dive into what a team is like that never loses is kind of amazing. And what it requires is an amazing leader an amazing floor general and that was Muggsy and you know learning learning about the best high school team ever uh two back-to-back -back years without a loss um and it probably could have been three years in a row if Muggsy was allowed to play that first year um mm -hmm. uh it's just an it's an incredible achievement and it sort of puts into perspective every every other high school team that says they're the greatest because they're at least second best now Muggsy I, I ask you this and I want you to lose all humility please as I ask you this <laughs> and just just speak from speak from the heart. I mean, we live in an era now where as soon as a kid is like eight, nine years old, people are recording them on the court and putting it on the Internet. You know, you came up in a time where it was like word of mouth. Were you like a, a folk hero of sorts in Baltimore? Like, yo, we got to check out this five foot three inch point guard who's leading an unbeaten team. Like, would, would people come to see the Muggsy Bogue show at Dunbar or was it more of a team thing? Because I imagine there must have been so much word of mouth about people just curious to see you play in Baltimore. It was a mixture of both. It was a mixture of both because of the team that we had assembled and had acquired. I mean, we was a show a showstopper. Everybody wanted to see that team. And, and just fortunate enough for me, it would happen to be a small guy leading that charge. 
and the inquisitive mind, of course, wanted to wanted to see that. Um, so it was a combination of both. They wanted to see me, and they also wanted to see the team um, perform because of the the hype that we had around not only just the city but around the nation. Muggsy, what's the most difficult part, particularly at the NBA level, of playing at five three? And what was perhaps a secret advantage for you that other people didn't realize? Well, there's no secret. It's no, it's, it's no, nothing magical or anything. It's all about skill set and about your capability of being able to compete on that level. And for me, it was about my skill set and my understanding of the game, uh, knowing how to run a team, know how to make guys around you better, as at the same time being able to uh, operate and get yours off as well. So having that understanding all the way through from little from the little league growing up from high school to collegiate level to the NBA. I mean, that was something that, you know, it was that was something that I was able to acquire. And I don't think it's any magic, any little tricks that you can have in terms of try to, you know, be able to, to do out there that to sustain it because it's too, you know, to have a long career, a longevity career. I mean, it's all about, it's one, stand healthy. Uh, two, you know, you I should say one, being skillful and having that skill set to be able to stand healthy, you know, of course, allows you to play a long career. But for me, it was me, you know, I kept improving each and every year. Um, I knew how to play defense. I knew how to contain. I knew how to run my team. So all of that combination allowed me to be on the floor. So I don't think there's any secrets because of you small anything that you can kind of go to the the lean on to have some sort of advantage or disadvantage i mean the game within itself is always going to be looked at as a disadvantage for a small player because they feel like they can take advantage of the height wise of the height situation but again it's all about how you're able to counter that and the impact that you able to cause on that floor allow you to be that player you are Mm. And Jake, I'm sure you watched a lot of old game footage yeah. uh, when doing the book. What was striking to you uh, watching Muggsy's game, particularly from this 2022 vantage point? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, uh, there's such a focus on pace in the NBA today. And, you know, it started in some ways with the seven seconds or less Suns and Steve Nash. But it started with Muggsy, too. You know, he, mm -hmm. he his ambition was to get the ball up the court as fast as possible both to put the defense on, on their heels and also to give, and this is underrated, but to give his team as much time in the front court as possible, um, which is just, uh, you know, it's just a, one of many examples of how intelligent Muggsy is as a person and as a player. And, and I think, you know, Muggsy talks about there's no secret and, and he's right about that. But, but if there is one, it's his ability to see every advantage, you know, and, and not to believe in any sort of disadvantage, you know, in talking with Muggsy for the book, it, it may be simple, but, he points out very eloquently that the ball is on the ground more and people are on the ground more. And so, you know, there's, there's a, an intuition or an idea that you have to be tall or you have to be a big leaper, but you know, height and jumping through the air only happens for a fraction of the game. And so if, if you don't focus on some sort of well, quote disadvantage and you focus on what you're able to, you can really impact the game. And, and that was Muggsy 100% both as a person and as a player and, Again, in the forwards, Alonzo Mourning talks about how Muggsy Bogues put his arm around him. You know, there was some contractual dispute when Alonzo came into the league and 
Muggsy was the guy, almost like Jenny and Forrest Gump on the plane. You can sit next to me if you want to. And and that set the tone for their relationship moving forward. And and the reason why Alonzo would want to participate in the book now. So what you what you see with Muggsy is his speed, uh, his quickness, his defensive ability, his amazing accuracy as a, as a passer and as a setup man. But you also see people putting their arms around him and him putting their his arms around them. And it, and that's why the book was so fun to do because it's heartening. You know, it's it's not just a book about achievements. It's not just a resume. There's real heart and soul in Muggsy's story. And as a writer and as just someone who appreciates that, is I couldn't have asked for more. And Muggsy, what are your post career passions? I mean, you, you have such a terrific reputation as far as uh, how you interact with the community, what you do in the community. I was hoping maybe you could flesh out for folks and let people know what you do. Well, of course, my foundation, the Muggsy Bull Family Foundation, where we focus on scholarship for kids who have aspiration to go to trade schools as well as feeding the community. Um, we have three opportunities, what we call labor of love, where we go and feed the community. And thus far, we reach over a thousand family members, um, assisting them with those type of uh, uh, services. And then we was able to award last year uh, four scholarships in the previous year, four scholarships. And this year we'd be able to possibly do eight scholarships. So, you know, trying to take pressure off a lot of families, giving kids an opportunity to, to go to school, to further their their dreams is always going to be a passion of mine. And being able to um, help the community, um, especially when families are going through difficult times, uh, they shouldn't have to um, make a decision to put gas in the car or food on the, uh, food on the table. So, by our services, being able to provide those type of resources for them. I mean, that's something that I, I, I daily wake up for. And of course, continue to, to mentor the kids, make sure that they believe in their dreams and um, let them feel that they are empowerful. Uh, no one's in control of them besides themselves because no one can be an expert on your life. And being able to spread that message on a daily basis, I mean, it makes me feel you know like I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part in terms of helping with the society. No, that's beautiful. Um, Muggsy, before, you've been so generous with your time, but I, I had, to, when I put out the word that I was gonna interview you, some folks from, who listened to the show, they sent me in some questions they wanted me to ask you. Can I ask you just a couple of those real quick? Absolutely. Thank you so much. I mean, first of, you know, I've got some NBA heads who watch my show or listen to the show. I've got some people who are just more interested in your story, but one person really wanted to ask about your first NBA training camp. Uh, you're with the Bullets. You're with Moses Malone. You're with Manute Bowl. You're with Bernard King. It's a, a fascinating roster. And, and you're this rookie coming up, first round draft pick. What was it like in your first training camp with those veterans? Oh man, it was it was surreal. I mean, it is now. I'm on the court with the likings of a Moses Malone, who I saw so many times on television. Bernard King, uh, when he was with the Knicks so many years. I mean, it was like. Uh, and then Manute, I heard about Manute uh, during my times of coming up, and especially when I was in college. And of course, being that tall, you never seen nobody that tall. Um, but it in training camp, I mean, Moses, he would what, what I did for Alonzo Mourning and Larry Johnson, those guys, that's what he mm. did. To me. He put his arms around me, took me under his wing, taught me the do's and don'ts about the NBA. Um, my first training camp was challenging, but was, 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 it was fun, though, because 
I was going up against the likings of a Daryl Walker and a mm -hmm. Steve Coulter uh, uh, at the time. Of course, they was veterans. And, um, and you know, trying to uh, play against those guys, uh, trying to have success against them in, in, in practice, you know, was, was challenging. But it, it made me stronger, made me better, um, because I was able to then learn that style of play that the NBA um, was accustomed to. And um, that was, you know, that was out for me. But I always, you know, kind of credit that that time with the Bullets. Um, I never, you know, look at it negatively. I always looked at it positively. And that was the key of me, you know, being able to continue to uh, survive the years that I was able to, you know, the long, the long time that I was able to play in the league due to my experience through the Bullets. I like that. So there's no thriving in Charlotte without surviving in Washington is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Another question. Is it true that you could at one time dunk a volleyball? Oh, yes. I could dunk a volleyball. I could dunk a basketball. You know, I couldn't palm a basketball. Um, if the ball came off the rim, I could catch it, time it, and throw it in. But, yeah, if a volleyball, I could just squeeze that, run up there, and throw that in. All right. And – how did you get to be on Curb Your Enthusiasm? And how often do you get asked about that? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, my, <laughs> agent, my agent and them called me uh, when I was with David Falk and, and, uh, and the crew. Um, they was representing me. And I guess Larry David reached out to them. And they had this scene. They felt like I was the best suit for that part. And of course I was. Of course and, you were. And, and once I got on the set, I had so much fun, you know, meeting those guys and Richard Lewis. They had me cracking up the entire time. I mean, of course, you know, it was ad lib in terms of the script. Yeah. Uh, it was just a storyline, but I had so much fun, man. They have an opportunity to do some cameos like that. I never even dreamt that I'll be getting calls for those type of situations. Um, the kid coming from the projects, I mean, that was the furthest thing from my, my dreams, but thankful and grateful and I'm blessed that those opportunities came along because I really enjoyed it. And then lastly, what is Muggsy's music? What does Muggsy listen to? Oh, what Muggsy listen to? I mean, I'm I'm a little versatile. Of course, I listen to today's hip hop. Mm. You know, Dirk and, you know, of course, you know, Jay-Z and I mean, Baby and I mean, I listen to all that. Then, of course, you know, I'll go back and listen to my whispers yeah. yeah, listen to my Jeffrey Osborne, and my Luther Vandross, you know, so I mix it up. Or I may throw in a Maroon 5, who knows, you know, Taylor Swift, I don't know. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, I put on a little Najee every now and then. So, I mean, I'm a little versatile with my music. I just love the, 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 the greatness behind that artist in terms of what they put together. I mean, it's un unbelievable the things that they're able to, to come up with. Nice. And Jake, uh, before I let you go, what's one thing you want folks to know about the book that we haven't covered? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, you know, uh, Muggsy's life is an inspiration. And I think that's the whole point. And you hear it in all the stories. You know, it's, it's interesting the reason that we sort of landed on the title of the godfather of small ball is both because Muggsy, you know, sort of came first and he has the title of being the shortest player to ever play in the NBA. But what I discovered throughout writing the book is how connected he is to everybody. You know, 
he was there and sort of helping Steph Curry grow, you know, uh, Charles Oakley, Larry Johnson, Alonzo Mourning, Vince Carter, <clears throat> Chris Paul speaks super highly of Muggsy Bogues. Uh, and that interconnectivity is just kind of astounding to me in, in a sport where everybody has to make sure that they're the best and believe that they're the best to have somebody that they love and appreciate and sort of would go to bat for and call up a, a journalist that they've never met and, and give stories about Muggsy Bogues. Like that's the sort of thread of the book. And that's sort of the, the, the vibe of the book is how uh, connected Muggsy Bogues has been throughout the history of basketball. You, can, you know, you can't tell the story of basketball without him, which is why these NBA 75 commercials feature his beautiful smile and his wink. You know, I'm sure you've seen them yeah. watching games and he's one of the first people that they show. It's because everybody knows who Muggsy Bogues is and his name is sort of synonymous with achievement. And that's as much as, as Muggsy talked about at the beginning, as much as basketball and, um, you know, that life is part of the book. So is Muggsy's spirit and his sort of interconnectivity. So I think people who are going to read the book and buy the book, prepare yourself for a lot of sort of heartwarming connections with, with other people as much as it is a, a story about athletics. Mm, and Muggsy, any last thoughts for our audience? Yeah, I think Jake just summed it up. He captured it all. And I'm so thankful and grateful that I had the opportunity to work with him because he kind of felt me. He understood where I was coming from. He, he, he Not only he felt my passion, but also getting it from the others. And uh, that's something that I'm so grateful that we was able to accomplished throughout this book and then also about you know the relationship with my wife mm. you know neighbor to you know divorce for 10 years and then reconnect again um talking about how i was a boy back then being able to grow into a man um is in those situations so it's it's a it's a very heartwarming situation again like i said it's not just about a basketball it's about a passion that you may have and you're chasing it each and every day, you know, and about the relationships, about giving back to the community. So it's a lot hot for a warm, uh, a lot heartwarming um, coming th- come from this. So I'm so thankful that Jake was able to capture that. Mm, the book is called Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. Tyrone Muggsy Bogues, Jake Udi. Jake Udi, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you. Uh- Thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, man. It's, it's a dream for me. I'm, I'm loving this. Uh, we'll be back right after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, the problem is not just what happened to Brittany Griner. The problem is that we don't know what is happening to Brittany Griner now. The WNBA superstar was allegedly caught with hashish oil in her luggage at a Russian airport and has been in custody for several weeks. For the first couple of weeks, it was as if no one noticed she was missing. No small feat for an athlete who is six foot nine and one of the most recognizable players in the history of the game. 
She's also well-known in Russia, where she plays for a team in the WNBA offseason that in 2021 she helped lead to their fifth EuroLeague Women's Championship. Almost certainly, instead of creating an immediate public outcry following her arrest, there were efforts behind the scenes to get her out of Russia, which we know now was preparing to invade Ukraine at the time of those negotiations. The goal would have been to make this go away without provoking an international incident. Well, it's too late for that now. There are online petitions and a predictable uproar given the anti-Putin sentiment in the States. Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, posted a picture of them both on Instagram as the news spread over the weekend, and she thanked fans but also wrote, I understand that many of you have grown to love BG over the years and have concerns and want details. Please honor our privacy as we continue to work on getting my wife home safely. In other words, the delicate negotiations to get Brittany Griner home are almost certainly ongoing in a situation that is spiraling. Brittany Griner is detained in Russia at a moment when U.S.-Russian relations are at their worst since Ronald Reagan joked that we begin bombing in five minutes. When and how she gets home and how she is being treated right now are anyone's guess. We don't really know anything and we don't know whether she or those close to her know much more. Whether it started this way or not, we need to understand Griner as a political prisoner. It may have started with airport racial profiling and the idiotic war on cannabis, but now, by the very nature of this perilous moment, she has become a chit, a leverage point in a larger political war. The WNBA and Griner's team, the Phoenix Mercury, are being tight-lipped about the situation, as is the U.S. State Department. But I did reach the co-author of Griner's 2014 memoir, In My Skin, and her name is Sue Hovey. The former ESPN The Magazine executive editor, this is what she told me. She wrote, she sent me an email, this is what she wrote to me. Brittany Griner is one of the most resilient, mentally tough athletes I've ever met. When she led Baylor to a perfect season in the national championship in 2012, she did so while having to endure a torrent of vicious verbal attacks from opposing fans and online trolls. People forget that when she graduated from Baylor in 2013 and publicly came out as gay upon entering the WNBA, that was still a big deal at the time. It wasn't nearly as common as it is today for athletes to reveal their authentic selves. Brittany was and continues to be a trailblazer in eschewing gender norms. Even eight years after her memoir was published, I still get the occasional Twitter message from a college student who read her book in a gender studies class, or just a fan expressing gratitude for Brittany sharing her story. Like many athletes, she's had some stumbles and controversy along the way, but she always takes accountability and shows a willingness to learn and grow. And in an age of curated social media content, there's something refreshing about a high-profile athlete who gives us that three-dimensional view. She's relatable and human, and that resonates with people. It is absolutely true that Griner resonates with people, and now many of her fans are up in arms. If the goal was to negotiate Griner home quietly, those days are done. At this point, there is really no choice but to shine the brightest possible light on this political injustice and demand that Brittany Griner be sent home. 
political prisoners are rarely freed easily. It requires and demands an international response. Brittany Griner is a basketball titan who deserves more than to be treated like a pawn. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up, Just Stand Up, and Just Sit Down Awards. The Just Stand Up Award goes to the baseball union for standing together and preventing a gutting of the game even more severe than baseball owners wanted. So the baseball lockout's over, as folks might be well aware. And what the baseball ownership group wanted was the gutting of minor league baseball and the complete changing of the game. And what they got out of it was a 2023 committee that will include players and baseball executives to go over whether they want to make drastic changes to the sport, like a timed pitch count, for example, uh, an end of the shift, and other rule changes. Now, look, what I, what I think about this is that the people who run baseball really don't like baseball. They don't like it at all. Already, the changes that the union had to agree to, like having 14, 14 teams in the playoffs is just ridiculous and allowing for ads to be put on uniforms so now major league players i guess will look like uh nascars uh with the ads popping out from their yankee pinstripes i mean it's something that desecrates the game and i appreciate everything that the players did to prevent this utter desecration and oh by the way the players also got a raise in the minimum salary in addition to protecting um, the lower-end jobs in the baseball world. So, you know, they did what they did, and they did what they could against um, a plutocratic crew that was willing to lock them out and destroy the season and destroy Jackie Robinson Day. They were going to destroy all of this. This is the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson entering Major League Baseball. This is the summer where Jackie Robinson's widow, Rachel, turns 100. And they were willing to throw all of that away because they needed more money. These are some of the richest people in the country. They don't give a damn about this sport. And they're willing to disfigure it in order to pick the last meat off its bones. So just stand up to the players. Just sit your ass down to the owners. Sit your ass down. And I'm just really glad that during these difficult times, we're going to get 162 games of Major League Baseball. Go Orioles. Go Mets. And if those teams ever played in the World Series, I think my brain would spontaneously combust. Well, one more thing we got to talk about this week is Kaepernick Watch. Sorry we don't have Jake's takes, but Jake is sleeping. So I guess that's all we got to say about that. But Kaepernick Watch, uh, people might have seen that Colin Kaepernick put out a video this week of him playing ball, and he looked really sharp doing it. 
It's terrific stuff. And it raises a question for a lot of NFL teams who are having quarterback problems. I mean, the AFC has amazing quarterbacks right now. The NFC is just hot trash, especially with Tom Brady now not in the NFC, Russell Wilson not in the NFC because he was traded to the Denver Broncos. I mean, it, it is just uh, poop on a stick at the quarterback position once you get past the first couple of folks. And here's Colin Kaepernick looking for work. And here's the Seattle Seahawks that not only traded Russell Wilson, but said four years ago that they would sign Kaepernick if only for the fact that it would pull away from Russell Wilson's influence in the locker room, which I always thought was stupid um, and made no sense. Like, oh, no, we can't have more leadership. You know, and also it's a total misrepresentation of who Kaepernick was in his locker room, which was a team leader to the nth degree. So with all of that, uh, you would think that the Seahawks looking for a quarterback in a rebuild might give Colin Kaepernick a call. But then there are also rumors that the Seahawks might sign Deshaun Watson. And if you can't understand why that would also be problematic in a city like Seattle, then you're probably not listening to this podcast in the first place. The point is, is that in what is a rebuilding era for the Seahawks, what is unquestionably a rebuilding era, they can do one of two things. They can sign Colin Kaepernick while they are trying to figure out how to win. It would be a difficult situation, but Kaepernick would be an absolute folk hero in Seattle, and it would keep the good vibes that that city has towards the Seahawks. Or they can trade all the picks they just got for Russell Wilson to rebuild to bring in Deshaun Watson. So basically, what they'd be doing is exchanging a Super Bowl winning quarterback for a younger quarterback who's also slightly worse, I would argue, than Russell Wilson, while also mortgaging their future for a team that has, is utterly bereft of talent outside of a couple of positions. So all of that said is that Colin Kaepernick should be a Seattle Seahawk, and he also probably won't be because the NFL reflects our society and life just isn't fair. If it was, Colin Kaepernick would be doing what he wants to be doing, playing quarterback, and we would not be having this conversation. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to our guests. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, please mask up. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.